your mission should you choose to accept it. It's a pretty iconic line, right, from a particular, uh, it was actually a first, a TV series. I learned that this week. I didn't know there was a TV series, Mission Impossible. I found that out. But then eventually the epic film series, Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise going out and saving the day time after time again, right? The main protagonist, Ethan Hunt, he's given a mission, one that your ordinary agents, they had, would have no hope of accomplishing. But even though this seems like an impossible mission, not for Ethan Hunt, this is the man they call in to get the job done. He has a way of figuring things out and completing the mission, somehow living through the experience to come out the other side and to take on the next mission as it comes. But when Agent Ethan Hunt accepts a mission, everything in his life becomes about accomplishing the mission. He begins to live his life, as it were, on mission with a singular goal, a singular focus for however long it takes to do what needs to be done. We've been moving through the book of Mark chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We, we don't do this just because it's easy or it's convenient. We do this because we really do believe that this is the word of God. These are the very words of God to us and we want to know every word that God has said and we want to soak that in and understand what it means for us in our lives. Last week we saw the tragic indictment on Jesus' hometown in the beginning of Mark chapter 6 as the text says that Jesus could do very little there and it was because of their lack of faith. The text says that people were astonished but not in a good way but rather they took offense at him. And by the end of the passage Jesus is the one who marvels because of their unbelief. But this does not deter Jesus. This does, does not discourage him or keep him away from accomplishing his mission. No, the mission must press on. And so we find that at the end of that passage, he goes about teaching. And then in our text today, he is going to send out the disciples to do more ministry, that the mission may go forward. So if you have already turned to Mark chapter 6 today, I invite you to read with me as I read our passage. Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed, many with oil, anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Well, we saw back in chapter 3 what we called at that time the blueprint for discipleship. There was Jesus, there was the disciples there, and Jesus called the disciples to himself, and he wanted to do special things with them. He wanted them to be with him, and then he wanted to send them out to do kingdom ministry. And so they did. They preached the good news. They cast out demons. They healed people, etc. 
Well, here we are going to find a very similar pattern as what we found back then. But here more details are given about how they are to conduct that ministry when Jesus commissions them. As we look at this text, many see here patterns that often get applied to missions and foreign missionary context and and missionary work. And I do believe there are principles that are applicable to the mission field within that context. However, I think there is more here than just for missions. I think there is more here than just to be applied for the missions going to a foreign mission field, but rather there are principles here for every believer in Jesus Christ, for all of us to embrace. Because we all have a commission from Christ, and the principles in this text apply to that mission that He has given to us just as much as they apply to those going to a foreign mission field context. I just want to define a few terms very briefly for us as we contrast a couple of ideas. There's The concept of missions, missions with an S, this is often referred to the work of training and sending individuals who are often called missionaries into a foreign place, a foreign culture for the purpose of making disciples and planting churches in areas where there is not much Christian influence and not many churches available. Contrasting that slightly with the concept of living life on mission as the concepts of Christians living as Christians by taking the gospel with them as they make disciples wherever and whenever they find themselves in life. So Christ has given us a mission. Living life on mission means that we are embracing that mission and we are pressing forward in living it out. So if we think about those missions, we think about the Mission Impossible movies again. When the character, he accepts the mission, what does he do? Does he live as if that mission doesn't exist? No. He gets after it, right? He, he sets his mind. He, he, he lives his life on mission, as it were. The choices that he makes, the steps that he takes, all of it is designed to accomplish the mission. Well, our mission, of course, is very different than those movies, right? Like, there's very, very different things going on than Ethan Hunt and Tom Cruise in those movies. And I don't know about you, but I'm very glad that I have a different mission from those characters, right? The details are different. But we are called to live life on mission. We do have a goal. We do have a purpose. We do have a design for us that has been given to us by our Lord The Gospel of Mark has shown us many things about what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ, to be His disciple. What does discipleship genuinely look like? As we've studied this book, we've seen that it means being brought in by Jesus, to be taught by Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to be encouraged by Jesus. Even as the disciples in this book, they're they're often not understanding things, they're confused about things, they make mistakes, they do things wrong, and Jesus has to correct them time and time again. We're being taught by Him, we're being trained by Him. Well, part of discipleship is then, of course, being sent out by Jesus. A life of discipleship is a life that is lived on mission. What does that mission look like? 
have four principles for us from this text that help us understand and, and see a little snapshot, a picture of what life on mission looks like from the lives of the disciples as they were commissioned for specific kingdom work in the context of Jesus' ministry. First, a life on mission is a commissioned life. A life on mission is a commissioned life. Verse 7, he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So again, Jesus brings in the twelve, and he, he begins to pair them up, and he sends them out two by two. For the disciples, the mission in front of them was, was best done with a partner, right? With, they, got, they, got, they got the buddy system going on there, right? They're going out two by two. There's so much practical wisdom in this approach as well, even as we think about, as we go out and do evangelism within our communities, of going with individuals, there's a lot of practical wisdom to that kind of arrangement. And there's a reason why when we think of the different cults that are out there, the Jehovah's Witness, the Mormons, do you ever see one of them alone? No. It is always in pairs. They are always going out two by two. Well, why? Why is that the case? Well, there are many practical reasons for this. They can play off each other's strengths or weaknesses. If there's a question that's asked and one doesn't know the answer, maybe the other one does. They can vouch for each other, so if something were to happen, they can, they can be a witness for whatever is going on there. Of course, in the context of, of the Scriptures and Old Testament law, there had to be at least two witnesses to establish anything in a court of law. And so such is some of the practical reasons why it is helpful to have two individuals in an outreach type context and I can I can personally tell you just from my own experience that the times that I've gone out evangelizing alone versus the times I've gone out with another individual having another person with you makes such a huge difference in ministry life and in, in evangelism contexts because not only not only is there the protection of the, having an extra individual, but there's fellowship in the midst of that. There, there's support that comes in pairs that cannot come alone. When one person is, is witnessing, the other person can be praying in the midst of that, doing spiritual warfare in the midst of that context. And if we read on in the book of Acts, we find that the apostles, as they're going out and doing their ministry, they're following this pattern. They're often going out in pairs or in groups of two or three. Very seldom do we find individuals conducting ministry alone. If we read Paul's letters, so often the letters, if you look at that from line at the beginning of his letters, it's always Paul and Timothy, Paul and Sylvanius. He's, he's doing ministry alongside one another. There's a partnership in the ministry that is there. This pattern is something that we see throughout the New Testament. It's something that has stood the test of time. When we're witnessing other individuals, there's often an opportunity that comes about. And there's wisdom in being in pairs with other individuals going about and doing evangelism. And that's what Christ does here. He sends them in pairs, but notice that he doesn't send them empty-handed. It says he gives them authority. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. As we have discussed at length as we started this book of Mark and seeing the early portions of the book, we see Jesus establishing himself as someone who has authority. Well, now he delegates 
some of that authority to the disciples here. All right? These men just aren't sent. Right? They just aren't commissioned. No, they are sent with the authority of the one who sent them. They are sent with the authority of the one who sent them. I think of soldiers in a chain of commands. Does any individual soldier have absolute authority? No, he does not. Well, what about the general who's above him? Even then, no, he, he does not have absolute authority. No, it's, there's a delegated authority, and within our American context, that buck stops with the commander-in-chief, right? He's, he's the one who is supposed to be the commander-in-chief and over all those things. Well, the commander-in-chief delegates authority down to the generals, who then delegates authority down on through the chain of command. But the result is so that when the troops move on the ground... When they take ground, when they make their shifts, when they do their things, they do so with the full weight of authority of the one who sent them. They aren't there on their own authority. They're there to accomplish a mission based on the commands and the authority that has been delegated to them by their commanding officers. Well, here we have the disciples. They are sent with authority and the text specifies here authority over unclean spirits. And, and when we were back in chapter 3, we, a similar thing was said about how he was sending them out to cast out demons, etc. And I noted at that time, and I'm just going to remind us here, that I believe this is a form of shorthand for understanding the whole totality of their ministry. And this is going to be borne out as we get down to the end here at verse 13, where it says they were active in many things, not just casting out demons. And so I take this verse here, verse 7, where it says authority over the unclean spirits, that is a broader authority for all of the ministry in which they find themselves, not just for exorcisms, but for healings and for preaching the message of the kingdom of God. So they are sent with authority, and they are sent on a mission. Well, we are followers of Jesus Christ here today, have we been commissioned for a task? The answer to that is yes, right? Christ has commissioned us. And of course, the most famous passage with that commission is Matthew 28, where Jesus begins with, again, a statement of authority. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, on the basis of that authority, go and make disciples of all nations. So it's on the basis of Jesus' authority that we make disciples of others. So we can say with Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, where he says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador has delegated authority to represent the kingdom from which he comes. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us, so we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We have a mission. We have been commissioned to proclaim this message. The life on mission is one that has delegated authority to speak what we have been commissioned to speak. I wonder if you ever thought about evangelism in that way. The world heavily discourages 
evangelism and proselytization heavily discourages it. We can hear things like, oh, it's fine for you to believe that, but don't you dare try to convert me. Right, that's, you've got your thing, I've got mine, let's just live and let live. Or maybe even we, they could ask the question, what gives you the right to try to tell me what I should or shouldn't believe? The world heavily discourages any form of evangelism and proselytization. But brothers and sisters, we have every right to proclaim the gospel. And that is not just found because we have a constitution that says we have freedom of speech. We have every right to proclaim truth because we have the delegated authority of Jesus Christ who has commissioned us to speak these words. Christ says go. We are under His authority and not man's. So even if the Constitution were to be done away with, even if we were commanded never to speak the name of Jesus Christ, we would say with the apostles in the book of Acts, is it better for us to obey man or God? We obey God rather than man. And every time you speak the gospel, every time you call a, a sinner to have faith in Jesus Christ and to trust Him alone for their salvation, every time we communicate the Word of God to others, you do so on the authority of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I don't know about you, but that's an encouraging thought. That should be an emboldening thought for us, that we do not go forth in, with just our own words, but the authoritative word of God who sent us. A life on mission has authority behind it because a life on mission is a commissioned life. Well, a life on mission is also a focused life. In verses 8 through 10, he charges them, take nothing for your journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money for your belts. Wear sandals, but don't put on two tunics. And wherever you, you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Specific instructions, some of it might sound strange. I say, okay, why? why these commands? Why is this part of the mission? What's going on here? Well, Jesus, part of it might have been seeking to teach the disciples to live by faith, that that they do not need to depend upon themselves. They need to depend upon the Lord. They need to burden themselves with extra accessories along the way. They're unnecessary. No, you just, there's just the bare, bare necessities. So take a staff, like a walking stick. Wear some sandals, but don't take food. Don't take a bag. Don't take money. Just go as you are. Travel lightly. Only the essentials and the rest will be supplied to you along the way. The disciples needed to trust in the provision of the Lord for their ministry for which God had sent them. Verse 10 says that they're to stay in one place whenever they enter a city. It was common in those days when, uh, for a traveling individual who is he's, he's going to stay with someone, but he only, he only stays with someone until he could secure lodging with someone of a higher social status. So a lot of these traveling individuals, they would go from city to city and they would, they would seek to try to move up the social ladder by, by just developing different, different relationships. And whenever they found someone who was willing to give them lodging that was of a higher social status, they would move because it would be advantageous for them to keep climbing the social ladder. 
So here Jesus is, the telling, is telling the disciples, don't do that. That's not why you're here. That's not what this mission is about. Don't go around in a self-seeking manner, trying to, trying to better your own social standing. You, you found a place that welcomed you in and gave you lodging. Stay there. Don't be discriminatory with your ministry for the sake of your own social advancement. I titled this section, A Life on Mission is a Focused Life. And I think that's the principle that we can glean from this. As we think about Jesus telling them to travel lightly, don't don't take other things with you, but, but travel lightly. I don't believe everyone is called to give up all their possessions to walk around with nothing but a tunic, a sandal, and a staff. We're not all called to that. That was the immediate application of the disciples in that moment. But there's, there's some, we've got to bridge a gap here. How does this apply to us here in the year 2023? Scriptures often warn against the dangers of materialism. We can get so caught up in the in the fleeting things of this world, that it can draw our attention away from the mission. Scriptures likewise warn against selfish ambition. We talked a little bit about that in our uh, membership class this morning. That, hey, we're not to strive for selfish ambition. We're not to try to seek to advance ourselves for our, for our own selfish purposes, advancing our own agendas, advancing our own social ladder climbing. That's, that's not why we're here The scriptures warn us against these things, trying to maneuver ourselves to a more favorable position with others. And we're tempted by this, right? We want to be liked by the right people. We want to be in with certain crowds. We want to, we want to have certain networking connections, and we want to be with the cool people, or however we want to phrase that these days. That's our temptation. But what we must understand that the whole concept of keeping up with the Joneses, it can kill our mission. Trying to be cool or liked by others can kill our mission. Too many people live life as though the mission were to have lots of nice things or, or to be in with a certain crowd. And I, I don't want to make a mistake here to say that those things are necessarily bad or evil in and of themselves. There are many blessings that God gives that we can enjoy with great freedom. But when they become the mission, we've lost sight of why we're here. So this text reminds us of the blessings that can come from pursuing a, a simple lifestyle that prioritizes people over possessions, the Savior over social credits. And this doesn't mean that we should necessarily pursue poverty, like oh, I'm just going to do everything I can to try to live a simple life means I'm going to try to be poor. Like that, That's not the point. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. In, in some ways, I could say, by all means, make a lot of money. Like, <laughs> Do that, but use that for the kingdom, right? Like use what God has given you. Use whatever blessings he has poured into your life for the sake of blessing others. Don't let money be the mission. Don't let social credit be the mission. 
You know, a life on mission as commissioned by Christ, it is a focused life. It is a focused life that takes everything that God has given us and it uses it for Christ and for the mission. So if I'm going to build a business, right, I'm, I have my own electrical business. If I'm, if I'm going to do that, it, by God's grace, it needs to be a profitable business because that's kind of the whole point of the thing, right, is to provide for primarily my own family's needs, well, if hypothetically that business were to grow and I was able to hire other individuals, what would be the purpose of that? Is it to just enrich myself or is it for the purpose of blessing others? Is it for, for the purpose of growing God's kingdom? And I don't mean that in a physical sense. We can use the blessings that God has built into our lives for the sake of the spiritual benefit of others. Some people have been placed in very privileged social spheres with people that the world thinks of as important. There are individuals that have connections to people in places of, of power and authority within our nation. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. It doesn't have to be something that, that is negative within our lives, but we can so easily turn that position into the mission we can forget why we're here in the first place. So how can we use those positions for the glory of God as we live life on mission? Because a life on mission is a focused life, and Jesus here encourages these individuals, don't, don't take these things with you that could distract you from the mission. Trust in God for His provision for you. And He tells them, don't don't try to better yourselves in your social sphere by bouncing from place to place. No, you found a place that welcomes you. Stay there. Don't be discriminatory with your ministry. Be focused on the mission. Another principle for a life on mission is that a life on mission is a life prepared for rejection. Someone welcomed you into their home and they, they're providing for you and they're letting you stay there. Praise God for that. You had some receptivity in that town. Well, that is not going to be the case everywhere. Because a life on mission is a life prepared for rejection. Verse 11, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus makes it clear that the disciples should not expect to be welcomed with open arms everywhere they go. Praise God, some would receive, some would believe. But then there would be others who would reject. Shaking off the dust of your feet, it's a symbolic representation that essentially says, you know, I'm leaving a defiled place and I don't even want the, the dust of that place on me as if it could defile me as well. I'm completely disassociating myself from that. Shaking the dust off. There's nothing there for me. The reality of rejection is something that we're going to see in more detail next week, so I'm not going to linger too long upon this particular point only to note that we must be prepared for rejection. And part of that preparation is being prepared to move on when the message is rejected. We cannot make people believe. 
I wish we could. I really wish we could. I, I, I wish that, that we could just force people's eyes open to get them to see the truth of God's Word. But we don't have that power. We don't have that ability. And so when that rejection is there, we aren't called to try to beat the truth into someone. But rather... We recognize, okay, this heart is hard and is not receptive to the truth. I'm going to move on to others who may be receptive instead. That doesn't mean we give up on those individuals. We can always pray that God would, would soften their hearts, open their eyes, that they, that they may have a turning. But it does mean that we move on to someone else who may be more willing to have the discussions that we want to have with them. And sometimes it can be hard for us to discern, when is that the right moment to do that? Right? When is this person so hard and so, so set in their rejection that it's time for us to say, okay, I'm going to spend my time in other areas? Some, some situations are easy, right? If we're just shut down so hard that it can be easy. I mean, I've had people yell at me. I've had people say they don't want to talk about it and just completely shut down the conversation. Well, I can't force someone to have a conversation if they don't want to have it, right? It, it takes two to tango, as they say, right? We, it takes two individuals willing to converse to have that conversation. And so I don't force my way into those conversations. But there are others when where the line is less clear. Some seem to be open to have a conversation, but you try to walk through that door and it just doesn't go anywhere. So when, when is the right time to say, okay, I'm, I'm done? Just, just by way of, of, of experience in my own life, I, I, I typically don't engage mockers. In, if an if individual is willing to have a conversation and we're going we're gonna to talk about things and reason through things and think, try to understand the truthfulness of something and expose lines of reasoning and, and stuff of that nature, yeah, I'll have that conversation with them. But when the conversation turns to a mockery of the truth, there's not a receptivity there. And so at that point, I'm usually, okay, look, I, I see that you are interested in, in making a mockery of my faith. I'm not interested in that. If you want to have a, a legit conversation here, I'm open to that, but I have no interest in your mockery. Additionally, I generally don't engage people who are, it's very clear that they just want to argue. Right? They're not there to reason about things. They're not there to actually think about anything, to be challenged or to challenge someone else. They, they just, they're there for the sake of the argument. And at that point, I say, look, you asked a question. I wanted to give you an answer, but now you're just being combative about this. If you want to know what I thought, I'm happy to tell you. I'm happy to, to explain my views on this. But if you're just here to argue, I don't find that to be a fruitful conversation. That doesn't mean I completely shut the door forever to talking to those individuals, only that I, I make it clear that I'm not here to be your punching bag. But if there does appear to be a genuine desire to have a thoughtful conversation, that door is always going to be open to me. Constant arguing, mockery, door slamming shut, okay, those are clear indicators that this individual is, is just not receptive to the truth. They're not receiving the message, so it's time for me to move on and have conversations with others. 
who may be more receptive until such a time when there may be signs of receptivity in that individual's life again. But the reality of rejection is something that we need to be prepared for. And the reality of rejection is one thing that keeps many Christians from ever opening their mouths in the first place. Nobody likes to be rejected. Nobody likes to to be told that the things that we believe that we hold so dear about the truthfulness of Jesus Christ and the gospel, nobody likes to be told that that's false and to have our soul bearings rejected. We're going to talk more about that next week, but, but for now I'll just say this. If a life on mission is a life prepared for rejection, then being prepared for rejection means that we embrace the reality that there will be rejection to some when we proclaim God's word. But that preparation means that we still open our mouths. Being prepared for rejection means embracing that there will be rejection, and yet we still open our mouths. We know it will happen, but we speak truth anyway. Because again, going back to chapter 4, we don't know what God's going to do with the seeds that are planted. That individual may reject us in that moment, but we don't know what God will do with the truth that we implant into their lives. A life on mission is a life prepared for rejection. Finally, a life on mission is a mission-active life. Verses 12 and 13, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons, anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. Jesus called them together. Right? He gave them a mission. He commissioned them. And he, he told them to be focused on the mission and not be distracted by these other things, but to be focused on the mission. He taught them to be prepared for rejection. Well, what's left? Like I have some friends in college used to say all the time, well, there ain't nothing to it but to do it. All right, it's time to get busy. Right? It's time to, to live on mission. It's time to be mission active in life. The disciples preached the same message as John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. They, they exercised the delegated authority over the demonic realm. They healed many who were sick. They got busy with kingdom work. <clears throat> the way that we are called to fulfill our mission today is going to look slightly different than it did for the disciples. We've talked about this in previous weeks as well, right? I don't believe that we today have been given authority to cast out demons like they were. I don't believe that we have the authority to heal diseases on command like like they had. But we do proclaim a message of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation, the only means of entering into the kingdom of God. Life of a disciple is a life that is lived on mission. A task has been given. A mission is before us. So we need to be faithful, disciple-making disciples. Now, sometimes the application on points like this, okay, we need to be disciple-making disciples, right? And sometimes the application on these kinds of points can, can sound like guilt trips upon us. 
so, dear Christian, when was the last time you shared your faith? Right? Now, it's possible that that's a very appropriate question to ask. Not for the purpose of creating a guilt trip, but perhaps for the purpose of self-evaluation within our own hearts and lives. But rather than do that today, I'd I'd like to go a little bit of a different direction. Instead of trying to lay down a guilt trip upon you, I just want to ask this instead. The beginning of the sermon talked about Mission Impossible. A lot of those movies are pretty fun to watch. What makes them fun? There's the action there. There's the adventure, right? There's intrigue. There's heroism. At the end of the day, there's the the guy gets the girl. The the story is one. Like he saves the day. It's just a great story, right? The mission is complete, and there's an incredible adventure along the way. Those stories are they're cool. They're fun. They're exciting. Good entertainment. Let me tell you this. Every time you open your mouth with the gospel truth, there is a cosmic battle taking place. Every time we speak truth from the Word of God, there is a a spiritual clash going on between the spiritual forces of darkness and those of the light. There is literal spiritual warfare with every single conversation. You want some adventure? You can live it. With every gospel encounter. Let me say this as well. There is nothing cooler than seeing lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Seeing people grow in their walk with Christ. Casting off old sins and and living in in faithfulness to Christ. There's nothing cooler than seeing spiritually dead men and women being raised to life through the power of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing more glorious than seeing people who have lived with life-dominating sins finally be free from that and living as God designs. When people see the truth for the first time and their eyes light up and they get it, there's that aha moment. There's nothing cooler than seeing the Holy Spirit at work. When people's eternal destinies are forever changed through faith in the gospel of Christ, God does all those things and he uses his disciples to accomplish it. He uses his commissioned disciples to do it. think Mission Impossible has a good story? Well, try what God does with broken and ruined spirits. So the question is, why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? Why wouldn't you want to be a part of, of seeing what God can do in the hearts and lives of individuals if we wouldn't but open our mouths and speak Life on mission is a mission-active life. It is a commissioned life. It is a focused life, a life prepared for rejection, 
but a life that is active in the mission. Lord, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenges that are present here. Lord, we are all imperfect disciples. Even as the disciples in this book of Mark were imperfect and Christ had to patiently and lovingly teach them and train them and grow them along the way, even so that is where we are today in need of your gentle and loving correction and, and training and discipleship. Lord, I thank you for the great message that you have entrusted to us, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, that all who repent and trust in Christ and Him alone receive eternal life. We have this great message, a message that can transform the hearts and lives of men and women who would but trust in Christ, the message that can see individuals go from darkness to light, death to life, brokenness to restoration in Christ. Thank you that we get to be part of this in the lives of others. If, if we are faithful in, in proclaiming the gospel and discipling others, you use your people to build into people. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful disciples. I pray that we would live life on mission, that we would honor you that you would do all these things for your namesake and for your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.